0: Amen. Well, again, good morning. So I want to thank you guys um, for the, uh, the several weeks that I've had the opportunity to preach. I've kind of hit you guys with a, uh, a fire hose some weeks. Um, it's not often that we cover such large portions of Scripture here. Um, but we're going to do a real, real quick recap. Um, so week one, we looked at the, the person of God. Um, And all throughout this this study of Exodus, we have focused on attributes of God. Uh, And the big idea that week was that our righteousness will... uh, I'm sorry. uh, Our righteous God will deliver and redeem his people because of his nature. Week two, we looked at the power of God. We were in chapters 17 through 15. um, And we saw the great I am has a plan and the power to save his people. Uh, Week three, which was two weeks ago... We saw the precepts of God, um, and we saw that the precepts and word of God uh, reveal the heart of man and the Lord's perfect plan. Um, Through this narrative, uh, we've seen God uh, take um, an enslaved people, rescue them out of Egypt while using a man named Moses. Um, Moses, up to this point, has gone through a tremendous transformation um, if you remember Moses at the beginning, um, Moses was um, well, deemed by the king to be killed. Um, his mother miraculously uh, sends him down the river um, in, in the Nile. Um, Pharaoh's daughter finds uh, Moses, and Moses is raised in Pharaoh's uh, house. Um, he is basically a, a nobody, a man without a home. Um, his, uh, he's living with a people who are not his people and he's seeing his people and he's seeing the oppression of his people, um, winds up, uh, murdering an Egyptian, flees to the wilderness, um, finds a, uh, a man out there named Jethro and his daughters, marries one of them and becomes a shepherd, um, and God appears to him in a burning bush, calls him to do something great, something exciting, something that the people of God wanted and were crying out for, which is to be the man to take his people, God's people, out of Egypt, and Moses is reluctant. Um, He starts making excuse after excuse. God gives him a helper, and Aaron, who we're going to see today, isn't much of a helper at times, Um, and Moses now is at the point where he has, um, he has brought these people out of the land. Um, the, the Red Seas have parted. He is at the foot of Mount Sinai, and he has gone to the top of the mountain and been in the presence of the Lord. And this is where we pick it up today. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. We're going to go back and just kind of cover this because I think it's important. But today we're going to talk about the presence of God. Um, the presence of God. And we're going to see um, exactly what God desires. So Exodus chapter 24 in verse 1 here says, Then Moses, uh, uh, then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and uh, Abihu, and the seventy elders, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near. And the people shall not come up with him. So Moses came and told the people the words of the Lord uh, and all the rulers. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel, he set young men of the people of Israel, who offered burnt offerings, sacrifices, uh, burnt offerings, and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it on the basin, and half the blood he threw against the altar. So here we see something very important that Moses does. Moses goes up on the mountain. He talks to God. God says, hey, tell the people everything that I have said. I'm going to make a covenant with them. Moses comes down. He tells the people everything God has said. And the people respond and they say, we can do it. We will do it, Moses. So Moses hurriedly grabs some some rocks, creates an altar here. Um, There were very specific uh, instructions that Moses had had received about building the altar. It basically was just rocks that he found. He finds 12 pillars, and he makes a sacrifice. And there is something very important in the sacrifice that he's going to do. From the sacrifices, he gathers the blood. And Moses writes down a book of the covenant. All of the words that God had commanded. And he goes before the people and he takes half of the blood and he throws it against the altar. And then we pick it up in verse 7 here. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of all the people. And they all said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. This is the second time they've heard the same exact thing. And the second time they agree, we will be obedient. Verse 8 and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance to all these words. Moses takes half of the blood, throws it on the altar. Half of the blood, he throws it on the people. Friends, our big idea today is that God's desire to dwell with his people, demands that the defiled are washed in blood. There needs to be a spilling of blood in order to come into the presence of God. This is what our righteous God demands. Moses knows it. So he makes a sacrifice and he puts the blood on the people. Verse nine, And Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu And the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel there under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stones like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief, on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and he ate and drank. Now, this is very, very significant. What we see here is that in order to enter the presence of God, one must be washed in blood. Remember what we said before, okay? This is not a new story. Okay, uh, it's, it's not a different story. Uh, the, the story of the New Testament is the same story as the Old Testament. Blood would be required to enter into the presence of the Lord. Moses makes a sacrifice here. The people are washed in blood and they're able to enter into his presence. They make a covenant with God here. And they say, God, we will do everything that you say. This is not the first time that God has commanded them to be obedient or called them to obedience. And we'll look back and we'll see this, we'll see this again. Um, we want to continue on. We want to keep moving here because, again, we're going to do a survey, um, kind of this, of this big survey here, and hopefully wrap it all up together in the New Testament at the end. But in chapter 25, we have the reason for building the tabernacle. Now you say to me, what is a tabernacle? Well, Mike Lewis and his wife Sue, they were so gracious, and you're going to have to forgive me here, it's very delicate, so I made this covering for it, Um, but uh, this is a representation, a picture of the tabernacle. Uh, and what we have here is we have the, the tribes of Israel all surrounding um, the tabernacle with the tabernacle um, in the middle with a courtyard around it. Um, we have the, the brazen altar, the, uh, the wash basin, and then of course we have the smoke and the fire that the presence of the Lord is represented by. I'm going to put this down here because I don't want to hold it too long, but we're going to put this in the back at the end of the service. If you'd like to look at it, it's a pretty uh, accurate representation of exactly what the, uh, the tabernacle looked like there. Stay. Okay. So let's hop into, into 25 here. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, take for me a contribution. Every man whose heart moves him you shall receive a contribution for me. and this contribution shall be that you receive from them gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarn. Fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goats skins, acacia wood, oil for lamps, spices, anointing oils and the, uh, uh, anointing oils and for the fragrant essences. Onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. And here we have the point of why the tabernacle was necessary. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and its furnitures, so you shall make it. So God is very clear here as to why he wanted a tabernacle built for him. His desire was to dwell with his people. That is the heart of God, okay? To dwell with his creation. How do we know this is his his desire? Well, it was the original plan, right? After creation... God walked in the garden with Adam. There was an open fellowship between God and man. It was a perfect state. Why was it a perfect state? Because sin had not yet entered the world. And what God is going to give us in the furniture of the tabernacle, in the building of the tabernacle, is a picture of what it is supposed to be like between God and man. That on once a year, a man, the high priest, would be able to enter into the presence of God and make atonement for their sins. Adam and Eve, though, sinned. And when Adam and Eve sinned, God came down to the garden. He was looking for them. And he said, where are you? Adam answers, he says, Hey, I hid myself because I was naked. God says, Who told you you were naked? And God then confronts Adam in his sin. And he says, Because you have done this, all of these things are going to happen to you. You will have these troubles. But one thing he does is God provides something. For Adam and Eve what does God provide for Adam and Eve what did Adam say his problem was he was naked and God spills blood and covers Adam and Eve with the skins of animals from the very beginning God's righteous demand on defiled human beings is blood it's blood. We see it with Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 22. When Abraham's about to, about to sacrifice Isaac, God provides what? A ram in the thicket to be spilled as a sacrifice, as a substitution for Abraham's son. The spilling of blood was required by God from the very beginning. Because God's desire is to be with his people. And that's what we just read in Exodus. Is this a unique theme to the Old Testament? That God's desire is to dwell with his people? No, it's not. Several verses in the, uh, the Apostle John's uh, gospel here. Uh, chapter 1. Chapter 1 of John, verse 14, here says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word dwelt, again, right here. Does anyone know what this word dwelt means? I know Ted Boykin does because I talked to him about this. Ted, what does it mean? tabernacle. It means to pitch a tent. It means to make a home, to make a dwelling with people. I do not think it's a mistake that the apostle John, when he's writing, uses this terminology to talk about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among men. We continue on in John's gospel. John chapter 14 verses 15 through 17 In John chapter 14, uh, Jesus is speaking and he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See, John takes it a step further. He says, not only is God going to dwell with you, he will be inside of you. We talked about this in the prophet uh, Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied, and he says, I will write their laws, my laws on their heart. I will give them a new heart. I will replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. God's desire is to dwell with his people. Revelation chapter 21. Again, another another reference here to, to dwelling here. Revelation chapter 21 in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the, tw- the, bl- the, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. From beginning to end, God's desire is to dwell with his people. It's all throughout scripture. And God says here in Exodus, this is the point. This is why I am erecting this tabernacle. This is why I'm telling you to build this. Now, here's a key that we have to understand. The Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, speak of the one who would come. How do we know this? How do we know that they're all pointing towards towards one thing? And I started off by saying this. Some may accuse me of going backwards here. Um, I've got some pretty good... uh, Testimony here as to why I can look backwards. Um, and it's, it's Jesus himself who, who tells us that we can look backwards. Turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 39. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders as he was, um, as he was so often. And in John chapter 5 verse 39... He says, you search the scriptures. Remember, the scriptures, guys, as Jesus is speaking here. What are the only scriptures that are available to people at the time of Christ? The Old Testament, right? He says, okay, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And, that they, uh, and it, is, it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? See, the Jews at the time of Christ, they were hung up on something. They were hung up on this idea of eternal life. And they felt like, because our father Moses, because our father Abraham, because we have the words of Moses, because we have the law, the law will save us. Moses will save us. And Jesus looks at them and says, okay, you think Moses is going to save you? I'm not going to accuse you someday. I will let him and the law accuse you someday, and you will be found guilty. Because Moses wrote of me, and you do not believe me. John chapter 2. Jesus uh, comes into the temple, and he finds it um, in a disarray here. John chapter 2 and verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeon and money changers sitting there and uh, and making a whip with cords he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins and the money changers and he overturned the tables and he told those who sold the pigeons take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade, and his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews then said to him, the ones who are in the temple, defiling the temple, what sign do you show us doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They laugh at him. The Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days but he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, Jesus compares himself to the most holy places that we're going to talk about today. The temple, the tabernacle, they are a shadow of what was to come. An important shadow of what was to come. We talked about this last week, this idea that, uh, or two weeks ago, that... um, why didn't Jesus or why didn't God just fix everything right in Eden? Why didn't he just, why didn't he just say, hey, you know what? We're going to fix it now. And then if he didn't do it then, why didn't he do it with, with Moses? Why send Moses? Moses didn't even want to do it. Why not just send Jesus? Why have this tabernacle? Why have a temple? Why have your only begotten son come and die for defiled sinful men? Why God? Why? We're going to talk about that today. But Jesus compares himself with the temple. So, chapter twenty-four of Exodus, we have a covenant between God and Israel here, and we're going to, uh, as far as the furniture of the temple goes, we're just going to summarize this so that we can get to uh, to the end and what the what the temple or the tabernacle was actually meant to point to. Um, and we look at the first. Thing that we find that God says to create, um, and go ahead, Khaki, you can put it up here. Here, the first thing that God says to create here in Exodus um, chapter twenty-five, verses ten through twenty, is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is made to represent. Okay, we're going to say that a lot um, as we go through this. It's made to represent the throne seat of God okay it's made of a few things um, It's made of something called acacia wood. We already heard that word as we read in in chapter twenty four it 's made of acacia wood and it is covered with gold the entire thing it has it has uh, special um, uh, rings on it here so that it can be carried with these two poles by people um, We're not going to get into all the times that Uh, that it was carried wrong and and what happened. Um, But that is how God designed it to be made here. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, on top of this box here, was what we call the mercy seat. On top of the mercy seat were two angels. They were facing each other and their wings overshadow the mercy seat. Now this is very important for us here. Because if this were a pagan sanctuary the idol that they created would go right in the middle. And God says, no, leave it empty. The significance of the Ark of the Covenant here is that inside of the Ark, there are special things. We'll talk about those in a second. But on the top of the Ark, once a year, a sacrifice for the sins of the nation was made. And the high priest would go in. And he was the only one authorized to go in to make the sacrifice for the people. This happened year after year after year. See, the ark was placed in a spot where only one man could get to it. And there was a giant veil in front of it. And when I say giant veil, I mean thick veil. There are people who uh, who debate over how the the high priest was to actually get into the most holy place, or as we would call it, the holy of holies. Some people think that uh, since it was several linens um, backed up with one another, it was kind of like this weaving pattern that you'd kind of go through and get to it. Other people think that the high priest actually had to crawl underneath of it. And we'll talk about everything that the high priest was required to do where in order to get under the veil to get to the Ark of the Covenant. But this is where the presence of God would appear. The Shekinah glory, the smoke would come down, the fire would come down and it would rest on top of this mercy seat. Now inside, inside of the Ark of the Covenant, what we learn in Exodus here is that the tablets that Moses will bring down from the mountain, the second set of tablets that Moses will bring down from the mountain are placed inside of the ark. There are two other things that are inside the ark that we learn in other places. Now, you're going to have to bear with me because we don't have time to get into this, but eventually, there's only one thing left in the ark when, they, uh, when, they, uh, when, it, when it all is said and done. Um, but, There are three things that historically are included inside of the Ark of the Covenant. One is the testimony of the covenant, which is the two tablets. The other thing that is in there is a gold kind of urn that has manna from heaven in it. And then the third thing that's in there is a staff. And it's Aaron's staff. Um, And like I said at the beginning, Aaron's kind of a knucklehead. Um, in in a passage that we're going to read in a second. But what happens is, um, in the books of the Torah, uh, the the people of Israel, as they often do, they rise up and they question leadership. And God says, hey, listen, I'm going to choose who is going to be the high priest and the leader. Everybody take your staff, put it in the tent of meeting. Everybody takes their staff who's complaining, puts it in the tent of meeting. Everybody goes out, they come back in, and Aaron's staff has budded with something significant that's going to be significant as we talk about the other elements that are inside here, but it buds with almonds and flowers. Now, why are almonds significant? Well, again, I'm not a farmer. I had to look this up as to why almonds are significant, but almonds are the first thing to bud. From the winter into the spring. They usually bud between um, February and early March. So, in winter, something that is dead is the first thing to come alive. See, inside of the Ark of the Covenant, we have three things we have the Word of God, we have the bread which gave them life, temporary life, and we have something that is dead. That was made alive. Again, if you don't see Christ in there, I think you're searching the scriptures in vain. They were all meant to point to the person of Christ. The next piece of furniture that we have in there is this table. Uh, go ahead and put that up, uh, Khaki. This table with bread on it, and there's all of these different uh, different um, elements that were, were to go with it, all these different utensils, but it was basically bread and wine sitting on a table inside the holy place. So again, inside the tabernacle, there are two places. There's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place. Most of what the high priest was required to do on a daily basis was going to happen inside of the holy place. Okay, um, Aaron and his sons were required to go in and to keep certain things happening um, as the ark, um, as the uh, when the tabernacle was set up. But one of the things that they were required to do is make sure that there was always bread in the presence of the Lord. Now, what is the significance of this bread? Well, Exodus tells us that, that there's twelve loaves that were put on there. Many people think it represents the the 12 tribes of Israel. Something significant about the bread is that the bread was anointed with frankincense. We talked about that in one of my messages. Uh, I think at some point I remember mentioning that to you. But this table is the table of showbread. And what it's made to represent is that God has a desire to commune with his people. Remember in 24... When, the, uh, when the, the elders of Israel um, and Moses and Aaron and two of Aaron's sons went up on the mountain, it says that they saw God, they get a picture here, and what do they do at the end? They eat and drink in the presence of God. Jesus came eating and drinking. Jesus came eating and drinking with Sinners like you and me. Jesus would eventually have a meal with his disciples called the Last Supper, where he would be eating and drinking, and it just so happens, bread and wine. In the book of Revelation, we talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. God has a desire to fellowship and commune with us, and this table of showbread is meant to represent that idea. That God is eagerly waiting. He has prepared a table for his people. And he's waiting to fellowship. He's waiting to commune with us. We come next in uh, verses 31 through 40 of, of chapter, um, chapter 25 here. Um, and we, we come across this lampstand. Go ahead, Kaki, put that up. This lampstand. Now this is probably, um, other than the Ark of the Covenant, um, one of the most beautiful um, pieces of furniture that's that 's inside the detail that is given here is is immense as far as the uh, the the candlestick goes and what you see here is that it's it 's a normal candlestick, but the unique things about this is that it was made out of a single piece of gold it was hammered out of a single piece of gold so like the unlike the Ark of the Covenant or even the table of showbread that were that were wood on the inside, acacia wood on the inside, and gold on the outside. The lampstand is pure gold. There is no wood inside of it, but it has something very significant on it. It has these almond blossoms all over it. Uh, Not only does it have almond blossoms, uh, Julie, do you remember how to say, oh, calyx. It has this thing called a calyx. Who knows what a calyx is? Nobody knows what. Okay, Scrabble, guys. Scrabble. It's a five-letter word. It's worth seventeen points. Uh, calyx. Calyx, right? The calyx is right here. It's at the very, very top, the tip of the candle here. And a calyx on uh, on a plant is basically the green part that covers it, that protects it. And as that. As that almond or, or flower blossoms here, the calyx is what remains on the bottom. It's the base of everything. So God gives them very specific instructions and he says, listen, build it exactly like this. Design it exactly like this. And I believe this lampstand, it, it serves a few purposes. Number one, what do lampstands do? Provide light, right? We're going to talk about the tabernacle in a second. It's a big covered box. Okay? There's no light getting inside of it. This is the only external light that we have inside the tabernacle here. This is the only light that is inside the holy place. It provides light for the priest to perform his duties. Now the priest had to upkeep this light. He had to constantly go in and make sure it was lit. It was always meant to remain lit in the presence of the Lord. But again, we have this idea of almond branches and almonds. And this thing was meant to always be lit. Jesus tells us, listen, I am the light of the world. I do think the lampstand represents Jesus as the light that was provided to the priests here. And the fact that there are almonds on it, I believe that it is hearkening back to the fact that he is the first. The firstborn of all creation. That's the lampstand there. So then we come to the actual tabernacle in chapter 26 and we have a whole chapter talking about the tabernacle and how big it was supposed to be and what it was supposed to be made of and guess what kind of wood it's made of? Acacia wood, acacia wood, acacia wood, everywhere, acacia wood. We'll talk about acacia wood in a second. But it's all made of acacia wood, covered in gold. The inside of the tabernacle, the walls are covered in gold. It's beautiful on the inside. It's majestic on the inside. It's also incredibly intimidating on the inside. Those of you who have been to Washington, D.C. and uh, other state capitol buildings and things like that, seeing the granite everywhere, it can be awe-inspiring. It can be intimidating walking into buildings like that. These priests would go into a confined area, a big rectangle, with two rooms. And this big rectangle was covered with several layers of linen, of goat skin, of ram skin. It was all covered up. And from the outside, you might look at it and say, What's that? Because it just looked like it just looked like a, a big rectangle with goat skin on the top of it. It was probably brown on the top. It did not look like anything special when it was just sitting there. We have to be careful not to make too many connections to Christ. But I do think the fact that the outside was not very attractive also hearkens to Christ. There was nothing about Christ, the Bible tells us, nothing about his appearance that would draw us to him. He wasn't incredibly handsome. He wasn't incredibly tall like Saul. He wasn't, you know, incredibly muscular like me or Jaden. Um, you know, I mean, he just, you know, he, there wasn't anything about him that people would be drawn to him by his appearance. I think the same thing is true of the tabernacle. When you looked at it, it was like, yeah, it's, it's a box. That's it. But when you went inside and you saw everything that was Inside that box, what that box could do. You were in awe. You were inspired. Next, we come in 27 to the, the bronze altar. Now, the bronze altar was, was important. It was where all of these sacrifices would be made. It was outside, uh, all of the sacrifices would initially be made. It was outside the tabernacle in what we call the courtyard. So uh, what would happen is people would come in and it would be the first thing that they would see. Uh, you could put the, put the tabernacle up there. Actually, it's going to help us. Yeah, so this is, this is what we would do. The bronze altar or the altar of burnt offerings here. What would happen is people would come in through the entrance gate of the courtyard here and they would be faced right with this altar. The first thing that these Jews would have to do in order to enter the presence of God, in order to be made ritualistically clean, Is make a sacrifice of blood. That would be the very first thing they were confronted with. Now this basin, this uh, this burnt offering—not the basin, but the burnt offering here—was just a big box again. It was made of acacia wood, and it was covered with instead of gold, it was covered with bronze, and it was massive. There were horns on each side of it here. And there was very, very specific instructions in the book of Leviticus about how sacrifices were to be made on this altar. Inside the altar, inside the box, were hot coals. So what would happen is someone would bring their offering um, in. They would lay their hands on top of the offering, and the priest would come over, and he would slit the throat of that animal he would take the blood, and he would put the blood in very specific spots around the altar, on the altar, on the horns of the altar, but inside the altar were burning coals with a grate over top of it, so that the animals can be burnt, and the aroma can rise to the Lord as a sacrifice to the Lord. we go back inside the holy place here. And there was a reason we went outside and then back in. Go ahead to the next one there. This is the altar of incense. It's inside the holy place. So there's three things that are inside of the holy place here. You have, uh, go back one, Khaki, if you will. Three things inside, uh, two, sorry. Three things inside the holy place here. So this is the holy place. You've got the candlestick. You've got the table of showbread and this that we're talking about, the altar of incense. Inside the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, we have the Ark of the Covenant. Outside, we have the burnt offerings. But here's the significant thing about this this altar of incense here. Again, made of acacia wood. On the inside, acacia wood covered with gold. Somehow, this altar of incense would need to be lit. And what the priests would do is they would take the coals from the altar of burnt offerings inside here. They would carry them inside the door of the holy place, and they would use the coals to light the incense altar. Now, incense. Some of you are saying incense, and you're like, I don't know, man. Incense kind of sounds new agey. I'm not real excited about incense. You know, I, I don't burn any incense. I don't I don't do anything like that. Incense in scripture is connected with two things, prayer and worship. There's something specific said about this altar of incense, that it was most holy to the Lord. The altar of incense was to constantly keep burning so that the prayers and the worship of God would constantly be before the Ark of the Covenant. Constantly be before the, the veil, that constantly the prayers of the people of God would be there. Anything in the New Testament that tells us anything about prayer and Jesus Christ or prayer and what we are supposed to do. Jesus Christ is our intercessor, right? He is our mediator. He is our great advocate. He is in the throne room of God making intercessions for us constantly. The altar of incense here, was supposed to point us towards Christ. We are told in the New Testament that we are to pray without ceasing, that we are to pray in the name of Christ. This incense that is rising here is constantly before God here. Christ is our high priest and he makes intercessions for us. Finally, we come to the the bronze basin here. Actually, let's, let's stop for a second. Um, is that next picture the picture of the acacia wood? So acacia wood. Um, what is it? Well, acacia trees are in uh, all over the Middle East. They're usually in hot environments. They're they're a giant tree. Um, most likely, you would see them in the in the um, Serengeti. Um, in in Africa, they're are a giant tree with a huge canopy. Just picture whatever you would see a uh, a giraffe eating out of right. They're they're huge, they're massive, and they're usually by themselves. They're a very hardy wood. Okay, they avoid decay like few other woods, and they last a long, long time. John and I were talking earlier. It, it's like uh, it's kind of like cedar um, in the fact that it's it's almost a naturally pressure treated wood it is a very tough tough tree and the branches only get tougher all over the acacia wood tree are these thorns over every branch see the acacia wood tree needs it needs water it doesn't need much water but it needs to retain its water In order to retain its water, it needs to protect its leaves. And God has designed it in a way that that thorns grow. These giant thorns grow on this acacia wood tree. Anywhere else in scripture that we see thorns? If we're looking backwards, do we see thorns anywhere? Where do we see thorns in Genesis? The curse, right? That's placed on Adam. Adam. The ground will work against you. Thorns and thistles will grow. Anywhere in the New Testament that we see thorns. How about a crown of thorns that's placed on Jesus' head? Guys, there's no mistake with God. There's no mistake. There's no, oh, that's ironic. Oh, that would be cool. God designed the furniture and the actual thing to be made of wood that would be covered in thorns, not only to remind the people of Israel of their sin, of the fact that in order to make these pillars, they're gonna have to take every thorn off of this and they're probably gonna cut their hands while they do it. It is not going to be easy work. They're going to toil, they're going to bleed and they're going to work for this temporary tabernacle that's only going to cover sin. A real sacrifice would have to be made. But we come to the bronze basin here. Go ahead and put that up. The bronze basin had one major function. There's not many verses that talk about it. It's a basin made of bronze. And it was for the priests to come and wash before they entered into the holy place. So they would come from sacrificing, go wash, and then enter into the holy place lest they die. If they hadn't washed, if they hadn't done it exactly like they should, there was a good chance that they were going to die. The only other thing that we know about this bronze basin is that it was made from the mirrors of the women who did the ministering outside the tent of meeting. That's all we know. Oh, by the way, all of the stuff that, that is made here is made from contributions that the people of Israel gave. Sacrifices that they made in order to, uh, to make this happen here. Finally... Um, we're going to hop backwards here, but in, in chapter 28, and we could spend weeks just on this, but go ahead, khaki. Um, we have the high priestly garments here. Exodus chapter 25. Yep, you don't have to tell me about the high priestly garments. Um, Siri's talking to me. Uh, Exodus chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. And Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and uh, Ithamar, um, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and beauty. See guys, the the high priestly robes here, they were meant as a covering for glory and beauty. That when that priest entered into the holy place, he didn't look like himself. He was covered with something different. Uh, we're not going to read through all this because we don't have time, but I'll just, I'll point out a few things. Um, And a few things that aren't there that maybe you've heard are there. Um, But uh, one of the very unique things is this breastplate that the high priest was supposed to wear. On it were 12 stones, each written with the names of Israel on them, that they would be over the heart of the high priest. The Bible actually says, Exodus actually says that Aaron will bear the weight of the iniquities of those individuals. Aaron came as a representation of someone who bears the weight. This whole get up here, I know it doesn't look like he's got a lot on. Um, It was probably much bulkier than this. It was heavy. It was a burden to put this stuff on. It wasn't like, oh yeah, I'm. I'm, you know, Superman now or anything. It wasn't like he was endowed with some special, you know, strength or powers. It was meant to hunch him over. That there would be a great burden placed upon him and part of that burden was this breastplate. The other thing I'll point out is his turban. On the top of his turban is a plate. And it's the plate reads the Lord's holy one or God's anointed when he was before the, uh, the, the Holy of Holies, when he was before the, um, the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, he needed to wear a badge on his head that basically said, I am representing the Lord's chosen. We know today he is representing the real anointed one, the Messiah. And he was never to enter the Holy of Holies Without blood. Blood was the one major requirement of going in. See, the high priest had a problem. The high priest was a sinner. The high priest had to ritually cleanse himself through the altars, through the cleaning. He had to go into the holy place, keep all of the holy, holy place stuff going, and then somehow get into this thick veil to make atonement once a year for the sins of Israel, carrying the burdens of Israel on his shoulders and on his heart with blood. Other unusual things. There's uh, there's two things. Or there's actually one thing on here that's not supposed to be on here. Um, I don't know why my man's wearing sandals. Um, he shouldn't be wearing sandals. He wasn't allowed to wear sandals when he entered in, when he was wearing this this high priestly robe and everything. He was to go barefoot. Reminds us again of the fact that when uh, Moses uh, encountered the burning bush, the first thing God said was, take your shoes off because you're in holy ground. So he shouldn't be wearing sandals. He had these little bells and pomegranates on the bottom so that the people of Israel could hear him moving around. Now some of you may have been taught something. And I can't find it anywhere in the Bible. I looked all week. Some of you say that a rope was tied to the high priest in case he died in the Holy of Holies so they could drag him out. That if they didn't hear the bells ringling around that they could drag him out. I can't find it. If you can find it, you can come tell me. I, I haven't found anywhere that a rope was tied to him. All right? And I'm a fisherman. I like things on a line right now. Um, but I, I couldn't find it anywhere. See, the whole getup was to show beauty and the glory of the Lord. Exodus 28, verses 29 and 30. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on his breastplate, the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring to them a regular remembrance to the Lord. And the breastplate of judgment, you shall put the erm and the therum and it shall be on Aaron's heart as he goes before the Lord. Thus, says, uh, Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Exodus 28 um, verses 36 through 38. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it. an engraving like a signet. Holy to the Lord. You shall fasten it on a turban and a cord of blue. It shall be in the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. He shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate um, as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. The last thing as God is wrapping up this this section on holy garments that he mentions um, in Exodus 29, 45 and 46 He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Guys, again, the whole point of this temple was so that the presence of the Lord could be with the people. But again, people are stupid. And we come to chapter 32 with the golden calf. God has just done something miraculous where he has shown, uh, he has shown uh, Moses uh, the furniture um, that's going to be inside the tabernacle, how he is going to dwell with his people. And the people get anxious. See, up on the mountain, there's a firestorm. Moses is up there. He's been there for a while. The leaders of Israel have already seen God. But they go up to Aaron and they wake him up and they're like, Yo, buddy, that guy up on the mountain, we don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he's coming down. We don't know anything. You need to make for us a God to be with us. And Aaron wakes up and says, No, I shall not make a graven image. No, I shall not do this. No, I shall. No, he doesn't. He's like, Okay, bring me some gold brings him some gold, makes this giant golden calf and the people start worshiping this golden calf. Aaron even goes so far, he says, make sacrifices to your Lord. We'll have a festival to the Lord. Tomorrow will be a holy day. And the noise comes up to the ears of God. And God says, Moses, get down there quick for the people are in rebellion. They have left quickly the things they have promised. Moses starts to come down and on the way down, he sees uh, Joshua, who's going to be significant later in scripture, but he sees Joshua. And Joshua's like, hey, there's a noise. There's a noise going on down there. Um, I don't know if it's a a battle won or or if they're in trouble. I don't know what's going on. It doesn't sound like a victory thing. It actually sounds like music. Moses comes down with two tablets that God has written on, and he sees the people. And Moses, so angry, destroys the two tablets. He goes down and takes the golden calf and he burns it, and he makes them drink the gold that was created. Puts it in water, makes them drink the gold. He then gets a a posse of priests, right, together. He says, Take your sword! And go around and take care of all of those who caused insurrection. And they go around and they kill the people who caused the insurrection. Moses specifically goes to Aaron. He says, Aaron, what happened? He says, Oh, uh, they told me to do it, and I threw some gold in there, and a golden calf came out. Don't know how. It was amazing. Aaron's not a helper, man. Aaron caved so fast. Exodus 32, verses 30 through 35. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves uh, gods of gold. But now, if you forgive their sin, I'm sorry, if you will forgive their sin, but but if not, please blot out uh, of your book, I'm sorry, blot me out of your book, That you have written, but the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of the book, but go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sins upon them. See, Moses makes intercession for the people here. And what we didn't read initially is that God was ready to wipe out all of Israel. And Moses goes and he says, Lord, listen. Take me instead. Do not wipe out all of Israel. Accept me as a sacrifice instead. Blot my name out. For a bunch of unrighteous people. We'll let that hang for a second here. Verse 35, then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron made. See, back in chapter 15, God made a promise to people. And he said, if you listen to me and you obey my commandments, I will be your God. I will lead you into the land flowing milk and honey. But if you do not, I will add to you the diseases that I, that I poured out on Egypt. And right here, we have that coming to fruition. 35, the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf. So they leave Sinai, chapter 33. God says, get up and go. Take the tabernacle, the things that you have created here or are working on, take it with you. Moses goes into the, uh, the tent of meeting here. Um, he's, he's making intercessions. Um, 33 says uh, in, in chapter seven, or verse 17, it says, The Lord said to Moses, This very thing I have spoken I will do for you. You have found favor in my sight. You know my name. Moses says, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim, uh, proclaim before you my name uh, is the Lord. And I will be gracious on whom I am gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. We talked about this idea of why didn't God just do this? Why didn't God just do that? Why didn't God just send Jesus here? Why did He send Moses? I believe wholeheartedly here that the tabernacle, the temple, the sending of Jesus all had one purpose and it was to glorify God so that God may show mercy on many so that he is a God that is slow to anger that he would provide covering after covering century after century that he would work his miraculous, marvelous plan of salvation and redemption through sinful people to show how great and glorious his son would be. I will be gracious on whom I am gracious. God says to him, listen, you, you, you asked to see my face. Um, I'm going to be merciful to you here. You can't see my face. I'm going to create a rock. I'm going to pass by. I'll put my hand over you as I walk by, and then I'll lift it up, and you can see my back. That's all you're going to be able to get. When Moses sees the face of God, he comes down and his face is shining. So much so, the people can't look at him. They ask him to put a veil over his face. See, again, guys, we have this journey of Moses from this nobody to now the very fact that he is shining like the Lord. Moses is a picture of a mediator that we have between God and man. Moses makes intercessions for the people. Moses provides things for the people in the name of the Lord. We read here, Mary read here this morning, he said, listen, everything that you've commanded, God, everything that you've asked us to build for the inside of this, we have done in order. We have done as the Lord commanded Moses. As the Lord commanded Moses. Moses practiced complete obedience in all of this. And we come to the end of chapter 40 here. And God says to Moses, listen, build it. You've made all the furniture. Put it all together consecrate it, get it ready because I'm coming down. And Moses gets everything ready. And the glory of the Lord comes down. And Moses is like, I'm going in. And he goes to go in and he cannot enter. Wait a minute. This guy who was going to sacrifice himself for all of Israel here, blot me out? This guy whose face is shining, this guy who is regularly meeting with God, even he can't enter the holy place? He can't. And at the end of the book of Exodus, we're left disappointed. There was only one way to enter the holy place, and it was exactly how God said If we continue on here in scripture from Exodus, we come to a man named Isaiah who's living during a time where sacrifice, the tabernacle, it's being greatly defiled. Chapter 1 talks about a vision that Isaiah sees in chapter 1 and he basically talks about the wickedness of the people and how they are defiling the tabernacle, that their sacrifices mean nothing. And in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And he called, they called to one another and said, Holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled With his glory. Isaiah looks up and he says, I am I'm gonna die. I'm a man of unclean lips. One of the seraphim come. And he grabs a coal from a piece of furniture that is inside the holy place. And he places it on the lips of Isaiah. And he says, Your sins have been atoned for. We start to open up this picture a little more and we see that the inside of the tabernacle is supposed to represent the throne room of God. The actual throne room of God. Turn with me, we're gonna end here to, uh, ladies, you're gonna love this who are in the Bible study for um, Hebrews, but turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll end with this. Guys, thank you for bearing with me. I know this was a lot today. But Hebrews chapter 9. There's a part of me that just wants to read this and and finish, but I I probably will make a few comments. Um, Hebrews chapter 9. Now even the first place had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section where the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence It is called the holy place. Behind the second, a curtain, was the second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar and incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail because they're not here anymore. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly to the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, for the unintentional sin of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way to the holy place has not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age, speaking of the age where the tabernacle was. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but dealt only with food and drink and various washings, regulations of the body imposed Until the time of reformation. So this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, listen, all of these pieces of furniture in there, they were reserved for a specific time. And it had to be done, the sacrifice had to be made over and over again. It could never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The worshiper would still ultimately still be guilty. But it was a covering for him. Verse 11 but when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things to come, that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, not weighed with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, and not by the means of bloods and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption, for the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of uh, defiled persons. I have no idea what's going on with my phone right now. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, for the blood of... Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, where am I at? Somebody help me. Verse 13. Verse 13. Uh, for the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through whom the eternal spirit offered himself without the blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. The writer of Hebrews tells us flat out, the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient. But if it was a means to cover sin for a certain period of time, how much more will the blood of Christ Verse 15, therefore there is a mediator of a new covenant to those who are called. Many receive the promise of eternal eternal inheritance since the death that has occurred redeems us from transgressions committed under the covenant. For For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only unto death since it forces as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, as the first covenant was inaugurated without blood... When every commandment of the law has been declared to Moses, to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the book itself and all of the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, sprinkle with the blood both the tent and the utensils of worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." Thus it was necessary to make copies of the heavenly things to be purified. The writer of Hebrews tells us something flat out. The only thing that gets us access to the presence of God is the blood of Christ. These things in the the tabernacle, these furnishings, are a copy of things that are actually in the throne room of God. The writer would go on and say, how much better is our priest that doesn't have to make sacrifice after sacrifice, that he doesn't have to use the copies that are made by human hands, but that he is now in the presence of God for us. He is in the throne room of God. He is the one that we look to. He is our high priest. He is our mediator. And by his blood, we are washed clean and can enter into the presence of God. Again, people, God's desire is to dwell with his people, but it demands that the defiled are washed in the blood and the specific blood of Jesus Christ. All of Exodus... A beautiful book, a great story of redemption still ends in depression and failure. Man still does not have direct access to God. There is still a veil. There is still a problem. And that problem is sin. You may say to me this morning, some of you listening at home, you may say, hey, you did it backwards. I had to do it backwards. That's all I knew. When we showed that video of of my mom in, in Brazil, it was a great crowd of people. It was obvious to me because I knew exactly what I was looking for. When I read stories in the Old Testament, there are things that are obvious that we should see. When Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and he said, you missed me, you who are the teachers of the law. How can this be? You devoted your life to studying scripture and you missed me. How? I will not condemn you. Moses will condemn you. You will die under the law. You will not have my blood on you even when you ironically ask for it. Remember the crowd as Jesus is about to be crucified We come full circle here. See, the blood was actually sprinkled on Israel during this first covenant here. And they didn't ask for it. It was freely given by Moses. But in the New Testament, we have a crowd of people who are standing there condemning Christ. Pilate says, I'm washing my hands. His blood's not on me. And the people say, let his blood be on us and on our children. Oh, that it were so. My encouragement to you today as you read through the Old Testament, Christ is there. Christ is all over the Old Testament. Do you know what you're looking for? Do you read the Old Testament and you say, "I, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. Particularly the Torah. These are some tough books. Especially when you're trying to read through the entire Bible. How much of Christ are you actually observing? Do you know what you're looking for? The main point of this passage is that God has a desire to fellowship and be with you. He has made the perfect sacrifice. Are you washed in his blood?